This is the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and to mark the anniversary, we're replaying some favorite shows from the archive. This one, an interview with Marion Banshees, was recorded in October of 2010. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Marianne Banshees about her daring typography and her highly ornamental designs. In graphic design, we're taught that we're supposed to focus on this message of the client. And you're supposed to get that across as quickly and effortlessly as possible so that people get it and move on. And I'm trying to do just the opposite. Here's Debbie Millman. She started out as a book typesetter and eventually, in 1994 opened up her own design firm. But in 2003, Marion Banshees left all of that behind and began experimenting with work that was highly personal, obsessive, and sometimes, as she puts it, just plain weird. Banshees is known for her detailed vector art, her obsessive handwork, and her patterning, color, and ornament. Writing about writing about Banshees on Design Observer, Jessica Helfand said... Hers is a lofty, loopy love affair with typography and pattern and color. In an age in which everyone claims to be a designer, Banshee's approach lies somewhere between perfectionism and fetishism. In this, as in so many things, she is utterly fearless. Welcome to Design Matters, Marion. Thank you. Hello. So you have a new book out. Mm-hmm. It's called I Wonder. Yes. It is absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. It has the feel and the heft of something ancient and magical and mystical. And I was wondering why you created a book that essentially feels like a jewel box and what was the intent and the motivation behind creating such a work of art. Part of the intent, anyway, was to create something that could only be experienced as a book. This is something that I often do in my work is deliberately make things that need to be experienced firsthand. And and this is what I wanted to do with the book, particularly in this age when there's some concern about the future of the book and printed publications in general. Um, So I very consciously wanted to make something that You know, that you would have a real tactile experience with and a visual experience in terms of the gold ink throughout that is um, really for printing, for the printed age. Marion, artist and designer John Coulthart recently reviewed your book and stated, more than anything I've seen recently, this book is a tactile experience which makes a nonsense of the idea of screens as an adequate replacement for all books. The boards are blocked with a gold and silver pattern. The pages' edges are also blocked in gold. And there's a liberal use of gold ink throughout. There's so much gold ink on the exterior that leafing through the pages leaves your clothes and fingertips lightly dusted with a glittering residue. And I'm wondering if you intended your book to have such a seductive and sensual experience with the reader. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I, I did. Um, I, when I first decided to do this book with Thames and Hudson, I told them straight up that it was going to be expensive to produce because I knew what I wanted. I wanted, 
I wanted it to be very rich. I wanted it to be, yeah, a very sensual and visual and tactile experience. And, you know, that costs money. And, and, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. I did not expect it to leave gold dust all over everything. Honestly, Marion, I have to say, I was hoping that there would be gold dust all over me as I rifled through and I couldn't get it to fleck off No, on no, me. there is gold all over you. I noticed it actually earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, I was uh, at, at the book launch the other night. Taryn Schaefer from Saks Fifth Avenue, he came and and he's, he's a wonderful guy and he was wearing this beautiful blue suit jacket that I noticed had these tiny little flecks of gold all throughout it. And I thought it was the fabric. <laughs> and I complimented him on the gold flecks in his fabric. And he seemed a bit a bit perturbed by it. <laughs> well, I can't even see any flecks on me, but that might be because I have really, really bad vision. So, so let's look inside the book. Um, you wrote several of the essays originally for the design blog Speak Up. You talk about your essays written online in the book and then also the fact that there's this web version. Um, but you also say that there's a web version of yourself and the essays in the book as standing alone without you. How do the essays stand alone without you? I'm not present in the book. Like on the website, I was there. I was, you know, I was lurking online <laughs> for the whole time. Um, I always said that uh, Speak Up was like a community and it wasn't It wasn't a magazine, um, you know, wh- where something goes out and then, you know, people write in letters and maybe they get a response. It's not like that at all. It was like a, a place. It was a pub where, you know, where we all were hanging out. So... I would have my article there, but I would be right there ready to back it up. And and the comments were always very lively. And, you know, somebody would say something and I'd say something back. A conversation would ensue. That was – it was really – those those blog posts in a way were kind of conversation starters. And the rest of the article would happen in the comments of the thing. That obviously isn't the case in a book. I'm, uh, people take the book home and – they're with me in the book and them and themselves. And if there's a response, it's not going to be in the same way. So you really shot to international stardom first through the lens of Speak Up, where you were first publicly talking about design and publicly defending your ideas. How come you're not blogging anymore? I think that, um, I mean, there's so many reasons, but this whole Speak Up thing kind of ran its course I was there because of the community. I'm not that interested in writing into a vacuum. And that community did break up. You know, it's like all things, they come and they have their time and then they're gone. We were very lucky in that particular space and time. Speak Up was the first design blog on the Internet. It had a huge audience. It had a very uh, diverse audience from young, new designers, students, and the people in the top of the design world in North America. And we were all there together, and um, and that just isn't the case anymore. There's no single place anymore where you can go to find all those voices and those people. So let's talk about your fame for a moment, because you did start writing on Speak Up in about 2003, and at the time you were uh, taking a break from what had been a career as a graphic designer. Prior to that, you were a typesetter. 
and you decided that you were going to stop everything that you were doing because you no longer loved it and needed to find something that was going to save your life. Right. In that seven years since that decision, you've essentially shot to the upper echelon of fame in the design community. How did that happen? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the great mysteries about my life, actually. I think that my work makes a connection with people in a way that I've still actually been puzzling over. But uh, that's one of the reasons that brought me to writing the book, because I think that wonder, in a way, is at the heart of my work. So, I, you know, I think that the the intricacy and the time invested in the work, in you know, in some way sort of amazes people. And that's not necessarily to say that it should, but I, I think that uh, it's connecting with them in some, in, in some sort of unconscious way. Because I, I, there are people who like my work whose, whose own work is absolutely nothing like it, who you know, who are modernists or, you know, with the exception of Massimo Vignelli. But <laughs> um, and then as well, you know, the whole speak up thing, I think, was was very important for my career. Um, I didn't realize it at the time. I thought I was, you know, just hanging out with friends on a blog. Speaking of other designers uh, liking your work, Stefan Sagmeister says in the introduction or the foreword to your book. Ultimately, it is not how she says it, but what she has to say, referring to you. It's like meeting a supermodel who turns out to be a neuroscientist. And I think that it's a wonderfully apt description of you because your work is extraordinarily beautiful. But there is a certain deep, intelligent rigor embedded in that work. And I'm wondering, do you think that comes from your history as a typesetter? Do you think that it comes from your career as a graphic designer? Where does that intellectual rigor come from that is so much a part of the gorgeous spirit of the work that you do? How how do I put this? I I really – I like using my brain. (laughs) I uh, It's why I like writing. I like feeling the gears turn and figuring things out. I think that's what makes me a designer is that I figure things out. And it's it's not fun for me if I don't do that. I'm not a doodler. I don't like to just kind of idly make something, you know, that kind of doodles on and on and has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. I don't I don't like doing things that are predictable. I'm interested in things that have surprise, juxtaposition, that require figuring something out, that not only engage my own brain in the making of the thing, but that engage the brain of the viewer or the user. You know, I don't I don't really like there to be a, a quick scan of my work, you know, that people can kind of just look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's that and move on. I really want them to do a double take, to see something that intrigues them and make them stop and look at it further. And wonder as and, well. And wonder. So each piece in the book, each essay in the book is very different. And you've said that some are tender and bare, while others lie in jeweled cases, and others still are tarted up like elaborate cakes. What made you decide to create each essay with a very different visual language? 
this was part of the point of the book, and it was one of the one of the things that I wanted to achieve with the book was to make a point about graphics not being superfluous to text. I'm astonished, actually, by the number of people in graphic, in the graphic industry, people, visual people who don't communicate visually. At the very best, usually what we get is we get pages and pages of text and um, illustrations to accompany that, which – and the illustrations are in boxes with captions and uh, they're separated from the text. At the very worst, we get pages and pages of text and, and no imagery whatsoever, which just blows my mind when somebody's talking about something visual. But I, I wanted to really integrate the two so that when I'm speaking of something visual, I'm not just showing the visual, but I'm actually representing the entire piece in that visual sense. The best example probably in the book is the piece that was about signage from my hometown of Saskatoon. And that was, again, it was originally written for Speak Up. And it was originally written, you know, on the web. It was necessarily written as writing and then images. And when I brought it into the book, I wanted it to be so much more than that. I wanted the entire reading of the piece to be the experience of seeing all those signs all over Saskatoon. And so the whole piece is fluorescent orange and yellow and black. I mean, it's really in your face. <laughs> and then on top of that, I changed the writing. So instead of writing in an article style, I rewrote the entire piece in the language of signs. So I actually turned the essay into a series of graphic signs. So the whole thing is complete. Some of your essays are harder to read than others, and you clearly state that the typographic treatments will no doubt cause a certain amount of pain to some of your more rigorously trained colleagues in graphic design. However, you make no apologies for the typographic jungle you've painstakingly nurtured. And so two questions, Marion. Why no apologies and why a typographic jungle? I actually think that the book is, except for one section, the book is 100% legible. It's meant for reading. I don't want people to get the impression that the book is typographically adventurous because it's actually not. I'm a really, really conservative typesetter. That's what I bring from my book typesetting days is this conservatism in terms of text that's meant to be read. But my typographic choices my combining of typefaces, my choice of typefaces is what would quite possibly cause pain to some of the the purists in the in the type uh, world. I think that probably the the average person would think nothing of it, but type purists would would probably you know throw their hands up in the air and say, "My God, why did she use such and such a typeface for this and not that?" So I, I don't apologize for it because. It is perfectly legible. It never interferes with the reading. And yet, you know, it's got personality, and I'm happy with that. I actually have to say, Marion, in the 100-plus broadcasts that I have done of Design Matters, 
I've never actually wanted so badly to be able to show something to my listeners as I do now. <laughs> well, that's a great because thing. there is really no other way to be able to experience this book other than see it. There really are no words that could possibly describe the adventure that one takes when going through your book. And so this is a moment where I'm going to have to tell our listeners that in order to believe it, you're really going to have to see it. (laughs) (laughs) But I am going to take some umbrage to something that you just said, because there is actually one chapter, and I think you did mention this, so I will give you that. There is one chapter that I have spent quite a long time trying to get through, painstakingly trying to get through, and have been unsuccessful. And it's a chapter aptly called Secrets. And so I am now going to put the question to you in person, what is the Secrets story saying? Well, that would be a secret now, wouldn't it, Debbie? Oh, now you're being being a minx. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, just in the way that I want people to experience the chapter on wonder in an environment of wonder and experience the chapter on the the signage from Saskatoon in, in that signage, so, too, when I write about secrets, it is secretive. There are two parts to that chapter. Um, One of them is essay-like. It's talking about secrets and ciphers and the the messages that we're not supposed to read. What do you mean by messages we're not supposed to mean? Like, Well, things like, you know, people's diaries and other people's letters and things that are – that you're really not supposed to be digging into. And it's written in a type that I designed that is difficult to read. You can read it. It's difficult. But once you get the hang of it, you can read it. The other part of that chapter is actual secret text in that I wrote it in a cipher, a kind of code. It's secret. It's a secret. There's a secret text in there. One of the most beautiful and wonderful and inspirational chapters in your book is the chapter where you reproduce many of the lists or the pages of lists from your mother's notebooks. They are magnificent. And I'd actually like to read something that you wrote about those lists from your book. This is uh, from the chapter Memory 2. Food, friends, family, pets, directions, TV shows to watch, notes from the radio, problems with her car, book titles, appointments, meetings, bills to pay, oven times, questions, answers, the repetition of chores and people and food weave a kind of fabric of life. Her life, my life, all our lives are somehow reflected in these pages. These are the things we do every day that make us both the unique people we are and members of something bigger and more universal than our own tiny lives. It's remarkable, really remarkable. You pop up quite a lot in her lists. Ask Marion to remove the dead mouse. (laughs) That was a particularly interesting one. And then things about the oven, phone Marion, make carrots, phone Jenny, phone Dennis. Tell me why you included these lists in your book. There is actually a lot of my mother in this entire book. Uh, The book is dedicated to my mom, who died in 2006. These lists were um, – they, they were kind of seemingly ordinary to-do lists that, that she kept 
for a good part of her life and which I inherited when she died. They were uh, a part of her life and, and as well as part of my memory of, of her because, uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, I remember her having these notebooks and the early ones have conversations back and forth between me and my mom and my, like my brothers. and What kind of conversations? You know, it was sort of what you did before before you had cell phones. I mean, we would come and go from the house and there would be a, a message, you know, from my brother saying that he's off to his polyscience class and a message from my other brother saying that he was out with Laurel or whoever. And But in particular, there's also these, these very immediate messages. So my mom, for instance, would be talking on the phone and I was a kid at the time. I was you know, 10 or something, and I would be bugging her and trying to get her to answer some question or, or give me permission to do something. And I'd be writing her a message, and she would write me a message back, and I'd write her a message. Meanwhile, she was on the phone. So she's, you know, talking to herself, and she's talking to her pets. She's, you know, writing notes about the pets. I mean, and they're hilarious. I mean, it's incredible. These are these are to-do lists, and they're, they're funny. And... Um, there's just so much of her in there and I I just – I wanted to include this because because they're handwritten and they're graphic. They're, you know, the perfect example of a graphic representation of a human being and, and in a way they're doing exactly what I'm trying to do in the book which is represent language and thought in a graphic way and she already did it. And so it just wraps up the book perfectly. Now, the artist John Baldessari once conceptualized the idea of not making boring art with the statement, I will not make boring art. And I felt that that statement could very easily describe your work as well. Uh, Your work inspires and it titillates. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your philosophy. I wouldn't want to be so presumptuous as to say that my art is always interesting. I'm sure there are many people out there who, you know, could find it tediously boring. But I'm not interested in talking to them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, certainly for myself, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, I'm, you know, I'm interested in keeping myself intellectually stimulated in, in the work that I do and hopefully other people as well. The whole art and design thing is something that has been a very big thing for me. I think that because my work is ornamental, there's a kind of a stigma that goes with that, um, certainly in this day and age. Um, I think that ornamental work, I mean, really since the days of modernism has been – it's gotten a, a bad name. And there there is an association of ornamental work with frivolity, that it's an addition to something that it, or and, and even possibly an, a detraction from something. So for that reason, I've spent a lot of time thinking about ornament in, in work and about my work and about and about what it adds to design. You know, quite honestly, wanted to kind of justify my work. When I'm making work, there are certain criteria that, that I'm looking for. I actually look for this in other people's work as well, but my own criteria for whether I've been successful in the work that I've, that I've done, I ask myself a number of questions. One of them is, does it bring joy in the viewer as well as myself? Is there a sense of wonder? Is it unusual? 
you know, I want people to see things that they maybe haven't seen before. A bonus point would be if it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? I love things that are funny, um, but it's hard to do. It's very hard to do. Funny can fall flat, and it can be, and it can be such a, it can be a gag thing. And I'm not really interested in gag things. I like things that are, you know, make you laugh without actually laughing out loud. But what I'm, what I'm really aiming for is, is, is a, um, a connection with the, with the viewer on a, on a level that is outside of our regular design communication, outside of the level of the message that one is trying to deliver. So I think in graphic design. We're taught that we're supposed to focus on this message of the client. The client either has something to sell or they have a message to give or a call to action or, you know, whatever those things are. And you're supposed to get that across as quickly and effortlessly as possible so that people get it and move on. And I'm trying to do just the opposite or not the opposite, but, you know, I want them, I want them to spend more time on it. And ultimately, I want to create work that people – like so much that they'll rip it out of a magazine and put it on a wall. And to be perfectly honest, I want things that are museum worthy. You know, I want to make things that are worth keeping for a long time and putting in archives and hanging in museums. And I think when you look at the design of the past, it is like that. You know, you, you, you put posters by Paul Rand on the wall you want to keep them. You want to look at them over and over again. The modernist posters are, you know, they're gorgeous. A lot of the work that we have today just isn't. <laughs> when we put stuff out there into the public space, we're influencing culture. We're creating culture. And if it can be something that is inspiring, that does make people look at it and wonder about it or think about something in a different way, it influences all different kinds of people. And you don't, you don't know who it's going to influence and you don't know in what way it's going to influence them. And I think, you know, th- this is undervalued because we can't measure it. You know, you can't say, oh, I, uh, I made this billboard and um, it was uh, seen by uh, 2,000 scientists and uh, 1 million teachers and so on and so forth. And Therefore, um, based on, you know, X formula, 10 scientific ideas were generated from it and uh, 130 uh, teachers were, you know, transformed the way they taught. And, you know, it's not possible to do that. And yet I believe it happens. And I believe it happens because I'm inspired by other people's work. When I read about science and advancements, I'm, I'm, you know, I get ideas from that. When I um, read poetry or go to plays or see movies or listen to music, I get inspirational ideas from that. And I absolutely believe that it works the other way around and that people working in other mediums and, and uh, you know, doctors and lawyers and, you know, everybody who, who needs to generate ideas can get inspiration from visual things as as well as all sorts of other media. And that's why culture is important. And that's why it's important for me to put things out into the public sphere that are interesting and unusual and beautiful and joyful and wonderful. Thank you so much, Marion, for all of the extraordinarily wonderful work that you do. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining me on Design Matters. Find out more about Marion Banshees. You can see her work at www.banshees.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.